Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. In her new book, The Three Mothers, Anna Malika Tubbs tells the hidden histories of the mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin. Reminiscent of books like The Warmth of Other Suns and Hidden Figures, Tubbs weaves together the stories of Alberta King, Louise Little, and Burtis Baldwin, showing how they shaped the lives of their sons and offering a deeper understanding of Black resistance and resilience. We'll speak to Tubbs about the book and the key but often marginalized role of Black women in U.S. history. That's all next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. Alberta King, Louise Little, and Burtis Baldwin. Their names aren't recognizable the way their sons are. But a new book by Anna Malika Tubbs seeks to change that. In The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation, Tubbs argues that by understanding the full extent of these women's lives, which span a century of American life and race relations, we gain a fuller picture of American history and the pivotal role of black women in shaping it. Tubbs is a Ph.D. candidate in sociology at Cambridge University, an educator and diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant outside of the academy, and the former first partment of partner of Stockton, California, where her husband, Michael Tubbs, served as mayor. Welcome to Forum, Anna Malika Tubbs. Thank you so much for having me, Anna. I'm really looking forward to it. Yes, and congratulations on the book. So how did the idea for this book come about? You know, there's so many different experiences that go into our careers and our choices, but I'll try to narrow it down. Um, My mom, of course, was extremely influential in my own life. She's always been very powerful and We traveled around the world because of her career, as well as my dad's career as international lawyers. And they taught at different universities abroad. And my mom advocated for women's and children's rights everywhere. And she was all about telling the stories that were being forgotten, that were being hidden, and um, telling us to think about how the world changed when we were more inclusive. And so I always carried that with me. When I started my PhD, I very specifically wanted to focus on correcting the erasure of Black women's stories. I was very passionate about that, inspired by books like Hidden Figures by Margot Lee Shetterly, and also inspired by Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns in the way that she makes clear that without understanding the Black American experience, you can't understand the American experience and you can't understand where we are as a country today. That left me several options. Unfortunately, there are so many of our stories that have been erased and forgotten But I also then thought it'd be interesting to think about the civil rights movement. That's a place where we often 
credit men and we forget the contributions of women. I was often called, you know, the woman behind the quote unquote great man. And I hated that saying. And so I wanted to change that and look at it from a different perspective and instead think about the woman before the man was even thought of or even conceived. And I became obsessed with motherhood and the mothers of civil rights leaders. And I started to focus on these three men in particular because there's another kind of erasure that happens. It's not more or less, but a different one with the mothers of sons. We often in society think that there's something specific to the way a man can raise a child if he's male. And I think that that's just wrong. And I also wanted to kind of shatter that notion. And I focused on these mothers, Alberta King, Bertus Baldwin, Louise Little. They were all born within six years of each other. Their famous sons were all born within five years of each other. So then I also had beautiful intersections where I could talk about a century of American history through the lens of these three incredible Black mothers. Well, let's have you introduce us to each of these women. Let's start with Louise Little. What should we know about her story? And to take a cue from one of your chapter titles, which is Loving Our Sons, how did she love her son? Definitely. Louise Little, and I first also want to say all three women before they were mothers and whether or not they'd ever birthed these famous men were incredible and were giving of themselves to a movement, you know, that was larger than them, that was for their community. Louise Little was an activist. She was born in Grenada. Her parents or her mom and her grandparents raised her and her grandparents were liberated slaves. And so they carried with them the importance of maintaining our freedom and maintaining black independence and black pride. And that's how they taught her. They taught her to be self-sustaining, uh, to not assimilate to white culture, to fight against white colonization and, and these notions of white supremacy. She left Grenada when she was 17 years old, wanting to join a national and international movement for black rights, Marcus Garvey's pan-Africanist movement, all about black independence. And she moves to Montreal, Canada on her own as a teenager. This is where she meets her husband, who's also an activist. So they carry these notions um, that we later are going to hear from Malcolm X as he becomes a leader in the nation of Islam. But they carry these notions long before, again, they even thought of him. They were activists who spread the notions of Marcus Garvey and his message across the United States. And they were actually sent to specific communities to engage more Black people in this struggle in this way. And so... In terms of how she loved her son, even when she's pregnant with him, um, at the beginning of Malcolm X's autobiography written by Alex Haley, he talks about how when she was pregnant with him, he she is confronted by this group called the Black Legion who come to their home and are trying to threaten her while her husband is away. She has young children and she's pregnant with another and she stands tall, knowing fully well that she could die in that moment and be killed and these men would not face any consequences for that. She wants to show her children what they should do when they are threatened by these white supremacists to stand tall, that no matter what, you do not bow down to these oppressors. And fortunately, she walks away alive that night. Her children walk away unharmed. But even if something had happened to her, that was the lesson she imparted to them. That's how she loved them that she was willing to risk her own life to make sure they knew about their own dignity and their worth, and that that was, that was the important thing to highlight. 
And another thing that stood out to me is that she um, exposed Malcolm and her kids to different faiths and taught them that a spiritual relationship with God is more important than a religious one. And, you know, when I think back to kind of the key, you know, moments in Malcolm X's kind of formation, um, again, kind of looking at the point of, of your book in this way is that, you know, I think about, oh, when well, we went to prison and he and he read a lot and then the Nation of Islam kind of came in. But there was already kind of, you know, a basis um, for his spirituality that was grounded from his mother. Absolutely. And there's actually a letter that I include in the book where he says verbatim, mom was the first one to teach us this. Mom was the first one to tell us that this is how we approach the movement. And even when people think about, you know, this famous story about Malcolm X taking words from the dictionary and writing out an entire dictionary and kind of relearning his language. Um, this was a practice that his mother taught him after they came home from school. She would sit all her kids down and she had newspapers from around the world that she wanted them to read out loud. And if they stumbled across a word that they didn't know, she made sure they went and looked it up in the dictionary committed it to memory and continued their reading. She wanted them through this practice to learn that they were part again of something much larger that was beyond the United States. There was a movement for black lives that was international and they were a part of that. And they also had to be well-informed. She was well aware of the strategies that were in place in their schools to try to brainwash them or make them feel like they were inferior. So she asked them when they got home from school, what they'd learned and she'd reteach them through these newspapers and through her own experiences. So when Malcolm is in prison and is then in a reformatory program where he has access to books in um, the library, his brother reminds him what he says, do what mom told us to do, remember what mom taught us. And that's why he does this thing where we've all spoken about the dictionary, if you're a big fan of Malcolm X, but you didn't know that this was connected to him returning to his mother's teachings. Hmm. And now let's move on to Burtis Baldwin. James Baldwin's love for writing didn't come out of nowhere. Burtis was passionate about writing and poetry as well. What else did you uncover about her life and how she loved her family? Burtis is just the example of somebody who carries love and faith and hope and this lightness in her heart, no matter what. That this is how she sees her resistance, that you have to find your happiness <clears throat> no matter how much someone tries to take that away from you or circumstances try to take that away from you. And so she's born in Deal Island, Maryland, this very small, small place um, that was very difficult for me to find information on. Uh, but I'm very grateful to local historians who sat on the phone with me and helped me understand the culture a little bit more. Uh, and I, in my research, found that her mother most likely passed away in childbirth or right around the same time that Burtis was born. Uh, her death certificate says that she was she passed away the same month in the same year that Burtis was born from hemorrhaging. And unfortunately, this wouldn't have been a very uncommon experience for a Black mother and same to, to this day. So she's born to tragedy. She's born to sadness. And through that, she again finds from the beginning light. She finds love. She moves forward. She's wrapped in love from her father and from her siblings. And they remind her that even when things can get difficult, you have us around you, you're not alone, no matter how far away from us you are. So she leaves Steel Island and becomes part of the Great Migration and moves to New York during the Harlem Renaissance. And she's a writer, she loves language, she uses it beautifully, she uses her writing to help others see her vision of the importance of maintaining hope 
and of letting go of hatred and trying to let go of pain, confronting the darkness, but in the end, finding a way out of it. That's how she teaches her children. They all inherit her creativity. They want to pursue passions in their in the arts. And James Baldwin, of course, we know, is becomes this incredible writer. And even the principals at his schools, there's letters that I include in the book as well, where they say that he directly inherited his talents from her, that even in her letters that she wrote to excuse his absences, her use of language was powerful and beautiful. I don't know how you write a letter to excuse an absence that's powerful and beautiful, right. but the fact that that is noteworthy um, is something we should pay attention to in history. And again, it's shocking that we would think that he just uh, popped out of nowhere, um, this poor black child from Harlem who had very little access to resources. And we don't sit and wonder how did he become such a talented writer? So this is again, fulfilling or filling um, a, a gap in history and our understanding of a man who we love and revere so much. We're coming up on a break soon, so we'll get to the third mother, Alberta King, when we return. And just a reminder, we are talking with author Anna Malika Tubbs about her new book, The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. And we want to hear from you, our listeners, who are Black women in history who you think deserve more recognition, whose stories have gone untold or received little attention and should be highlighted? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. More of this history after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. We're talking with author Anna Malika Tubbs about her new book, The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. She's also an advocate, educator, and doctoral candidate in sociology at the University of Cambridge. Uh, now, when we ended, we talked about Louise Little, the mother of Malcolm X, and Bertus Baldwin, the mother of James Baldwin. And the third mother that you cover in your book is Alberta King, the mother of Martin Luther King Jr. What should we know about her story? It's so hard to reduce them, you know, <laughs> I know, <laughs> in these really I know. short summaries. But to give a teaser into Alberta's life, she was born to two parents who really created and made Ebenezer Baptist Church, this famous church that we all know of because of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, into what it still is today, this 
beacon of hope um, that is all about advancing social justice on earth and that faith cannot be faith without social justice, that if you're going to be faith leaders and you're going to be a religious organization, then you also have to be committed to fulfilling the needs of the people on earth right now and thinking about the poor and thinking about the oppressed. And so her parents, uh, as they raise her, she's their only child, um, only surviving child. They take her with them to marches and they help her understand the importance of boycotting uh, groups that disparage black community members. They are some of the first members of the NAACP and they march until there's the first black public high school in Atlanta. So this is what she's raised with, even though they're not using the same words, nonviolence that will later become famous. This is what she believes is the way that you join a fight for black lives and for freedom. And so as the daughter of Ebenezer Baptist, she carries this legacy forward. Even when she meets her husband, she's also very well educated and she has these opportunities and privileges that he doesn't have. He's only six years older than her, but when he meets her, she has a college degree and he would be considered illiterate. Um, and because of this, she says to him, you know, she does fall in love with him as well, but she says, you aren't educated yet and you need to be. This is something my parents have told me in terms of opportunity and opening more doors for our people. This is something we need to prioritize. And so she goes to her father, all the men in her family go to Morehouse and all the women in her family go to Spelman. So this is where the tradition begins. It's part of MLK's maternal history. And she says, I want him to get into Morehouse. I want to help him get into Morehouse. And so even Reverend Martin Luther King Sr. in his own autobiography, it's a love letter to his wife. He's well aware that he could not have become who he became without her and without her family. And she tutors him through his education. She wanted to become a teacher herself. But at the time, the law stated that a married woman could not teach. There were a couple different um, fields where married women, middle-class women were not allowed to work anymore if they chose to get married. And this was one of those examples where she decides, okay, in order to have a family, I will leave my career, but I will use my education to teach my children, to teach my husband, and to teach my community members. She's also an incredible instrumentalist. She plays the piano and the organ. She restarts the choir at Ebenezer Baptist that becomes famous over the years. And she uses that talent as well to bring more people um, into the conversation around faith and around social justice and inspires them to spread that message beyond uh, their, their walls at Ebenezer Baptist. And that's how she loved her children. She teaches them those same strategies for approaching the movement. They learn about boycotts, they learn about marches, and they learn about keeping faith at the center of it all. And you include a quote from Martin's sister, Christine, who calls him ML, saying, I have to chuckle as I realize there are people who actually believe ML just appeared. They think he simply happened, that he appeared fully formed, without context, ready to change the world. Take it from his big sister, that's simply not the case. We are the products of a long line of activists and ministers. We come from a family of incredible men and women who served as leaders in their time and place long before ML was ever thought of. I just wanted to share that because I feel like it really sums up what you were um, seeking to accomplish with this book. Yeah, Yeah. and there were so many of these quotes by family members. You know, it's not only the mothers that have been erased and our focus on the men. It's also their siblings. It's 
their communities that raised them. There's so much that entered their background that they carried with them in their work. And it's really painful when their loved ones aren't seen. And it seems as though these men just popped out of nowhere fully formed, like Christine said. It was similar to another quote that I include from Wilfred Little, uh, Malcolm X's older brother. And he says the same thing. He wasn't, you know, just this, this kind of magical creature that was able to find his way on his own. Instead, it was the fact that they were part of a larger movement of generational knowledge uh, that passed through teachings through years. And it's something that we're still connected to now. So if we think about these men as these individuals that are separate of that, then we also lose our place in that history. Right. And it's a reminder of their humanity and the, of their village. And t- yes. It takes a village. You also highlight that each woman was passionate about different forms of art. What did you find significant about that? Art allows us to recreate our worlds and to reimagine what's possible. And so much of this book is focusing on the creativity that it takes for Black mothers to realize their vision of what's possible for their world. So to make that more specific and clear, when they have their children, they're aware that in the society that their children are being born into, their children are going to be seen differently, that they're going to be seen as less than human. But that's obviously not how we see our own children. It's not how we see our community members and our loved ones. We see a possibility for a world where we're all accepted and loved and respected and honored. And in order for that to be fulfilled, we have to have faith in something that we can't readily see. And we work to progress the systems around us to adhere to that vision um, and to learn that vision and take it on as part of our kind of shared agenda. And so in their creativity, I feel like this was one way in which they continued to give life and they brought new breath to all of us through their creation. And so with Alberta, it's through her teaching, but also through her instruments and her music and her singing. And with uh, Bertus Baldwin, it's through her writing and these letters that she shared with her family members and did so for her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren. And for Louise Little, it's through her activism, but also her love of language. She is brilliant as well. And we talked a little bit earlier about her love of words and going to the dictionary and learning as many words as she possibly could. They saw these as moments and opportunities for transformation, not only of their own minds, but for their children as well. And what I found interesting with this book, too, is you take time to illustrate how Black women were viewed at the time each woman was born and came of age, which in short was that Black women were viewed as inherently immoral and depraved. And and you offer a lot of quotes, historical quotes that, that Um, demonstrate that. And you often step away from the specific stories of Louise, Alberta, and Bertis to flesh out the historical context, bring in other people and stories. Why did you want to tell their stories that way versus, say, the typical biography of she was born here, moved here, worked here, etc.? Yeah, their lives are also about what they symbolize. This book is definitely about celebrating three particular stories and celebrating their biographies and saying why they mattered and still matter to us today. But it's also about speaking to what they symbolize uh, for Black women in America, for our current struggles as a nation, um, and for celebrating how far we've come and what we have left to do in terms of work uh, for freedom. 
and basic human rights. And so I often tried to go in and out to center their stories in the larger context of American history. I also think it helps us to better understand moments like World War One and World War Two and the Great Depression when you first see it through the perspective of three women that we're getting to know very well and who we start to feel personally connected to through the book. And then you start to learn about their contemporaries and the possibilities of what could have happened to them. So even in the first or maybe it's the second chapter where I speak about a woman who is lynched, um, a pregnant woman who is uh, cut open and her unborn child falls out of her. These were real possibilities. And just because Alberta Burtis and Louise were able to survive past this, that doesn't mean that every Black woman was. So many of us have died. And quite often, we're celebrated for the strength and the resilience and the survival. But the truth of the matter is so much has happened to us and many of us have not made it. And we need to also focus on the ugliness of that and change circumstances so we don't just sit here continuing to celebrate this supernatural Black woman who can make it through any attacks that are waged against her. All right. And and that's definitely something I'm, I want to flesh out with you more um, in a bit. And, but as I also wanted to bring up one of the examples that kind of of the other stories that you weaved in um, in the chapter in the chapter, The Denial of Our Existence, you talk about the mammy image that was put upon black women. And you reference Aunt Jemima. And it just kind of, you know, is that more relevant because just last week, Quaker Oats announced the new name for its pancake mix and syrup right after last summer's protest prompted these deeper reflections on some of the racist branding we have in the U.S. It's now the Pearl Milling Company. Um, <laughs> can you tell us about the woman, though, behind Aunt Jemima? Because that's another one of these stories um, that is mainly hidden, right? And and what her story represents for you for the three mothers. Absolutely. And it's actually something that's so interesting because I I'd spoken about Aunt Jemima even before, you know, these this kind of more recent conversation where we got to know the woman behind her a little bit better. And so I went back in and wanted to tell her story. I want to say it's Nancy Green. Honestly, I've included so many different um, stories, but I, I want to say her name was originally Nancy Green. And she herself was this entrepreneur. She did have these beautiful recipes and she used them to make money and to be a philanthropist and start a church. She was independent. It was the complete opposite of this mammy figure who gave up her own rights in order to serve her white um, kind of oppressors and white family and do whatever she could to please them. That's what the mammy does. You know, she kind of forgets about her own family and instead wants to do whatever it takes to please the white people in her life and serve them. She sees that as her primary role. And this is the complete opposite of the woman who Aunt Jemima was technically based on. And the rest of her life, even beyond her being on the face of these pancake mixes that dehumanized her in so many ways, is entirely dedicated to liberation, to independence, and to sharing her privileges and her opportunities with those around her. 
We're talking with author Anna Malika Tubbs about her new book, The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. She's a Ph.D. candidate in sociology at Cambridge University and an educator in diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant outside of the academy. What questions do you have for Anna Malika Tubbs? What black women in history do you think deserve more recognition, whose stories have gone untold or received a little attention and should be highlighted? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. A listener writes, Alicia Garza tweeted that she couldn't put your book down even though she has deadlines. Can you talk about your approach to writing and making history engaging for your readers? And and that was that kind of dovetails with the question I, I had as well about how you went about piecing together this this book, this kind of history. That was such a surreal moment. She tweeted that yesterday and I was just, oh my gosh, you guys said to my husband, this is so crazy, Alicia Garza. We have an event actually coming up this week with the Women's Foundation of California. It's um, at 1.30 on, oh gosh, it's either Wednesday or Thursday. I don't know, I have so many events, but please do tune into it. It's going to be a great conversation with Alicia Garza. Um, in terms of how I wrote this book and put together the different facts um, and details, it was difficult. This was not easy at all. Anytime you're trying to piece together a life that has been erased or kind of this puzzle piece that's been scattered all over the place, it um, isn't an easy feat, but it's definitely worthwhile. So each of the pieces of the puzzle that I was able to find truly were like finding needles in the haystack. I started first with the men. That was my entry point. So books that they'd written or speeches they'd given Um, interviews that they'd been part of. I took any reference to their mothers and started my kind of master list. And then from there, I approached scholars who studied the men or who had access to the archives that were focused on the men and asked if they had any folders on their mothers, which quite often hadn't been asked for. I was maybe one of the first to say, can I look at these letters? This is what I'm specifically interested in. And they were very generous in sharing those with me. I contacted local historians and the different places where the women live to try to find birth certificates and death certificates. I looked at census data, which wasn't all that helpful because quite often Black women's lives and Black girls' lives were not recorded. So for instance, Burtis Baldwin, I couldn't find on any census data, but I could find her older brothers. And that way I could track where she might have lived and Um, different details in that way. So from there, I also approached the families. I knew that it was going to be complicated to think about, you know, these families and how often they've been, I would say, hurt and almost dehumanized by scholars and researchers because we think about the men solely as literary figures and not these human beings with family members who loved them and who experienced pain every time these men are misunderstood. And experienced extreme loss when they lost them um, and when they were killed or even with James Baldwin, who passed away later. It was something that I was very sensitive to. And so I wanted to be well prepared before I reached out to them. And some of them were more hesitant and they didn't necessarily want to be interviewed. Others were willing to talk on the phone or meet in person before the pandemic and gave me that context that's just more personal and I could fill in some of the gaps from the examples I'd read about, but I really understood them uh, on a deeper level and I could hear from family members. And then in terms of the writing process and putting it all together, in some ways the book 
wrote itself because these women's stories were so incredible and just beautiful that I had incredible motivation. I never experienced any kind of writer's block in this project. But in other ways, I had the challenge that I presented myself with of connecting three stories of incredibly different women celebrating their diversity, not wanting to reduce them into any categories, making sure that I also found cool ways to connect them through the context of American history and what was happening and then thinking about how their sons eventually will meet each other. And I wanted our readers to think about how they were carrying their mothers in these moments and they finally met and make you have this emotional reaction where you cry and laugh with Bertus Louise and mm. Alberta. So I had a lot of goals and I was really, you get nervous to put your work out there. It's a very vulnerable experience, but I'm grateful that people are, are feeling it and feeling the different goals that I had in mind and want to keep reading and we want to know more. And finally, I'll say that hopefully through this writing, we will get to know more about the women. I don't see this as the end of our exploration of these three lives. You know, the three sons, there's books written about them every single year. So I, while I'm proud of everything I was able to find, I know there's a lot more out there and I hope that the families are feel even more comfortable sharing details with us um, now that people are more curious and are asking questions about these incredible women. And well, we did get um, some information about the event you mentioned. So the Women's Foundation California talk with Alicia Garza is this Thursday, February 18th at 1.30 p.m. And we're going to have more with author Anna Malika Tubbs and her new book, The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation after the break. And remember, you can get involved with the conversation, 866-733-6786 at KQED Forum on Twitter and Facebook or email us forum at kqed.org. More after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. I'm talking with author Anna Malika Tubbs about her new book, The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. And I wanted to share um, some reflections that kind of came up for me while while reading it. Um, as empowering and illuminating as the book is, and as proud as I personally felt as a Black woman while reading it, it also re-triggered a frustration around the generational burden Black women carry mm-hmm. of being a constant source of strength, of being a pillar, a savior. And while it was nice to see, you know, thank you, Black women trend after last year's election and recognition of what women like Stacey Abrams and Latasha Brown did in Georgia and credit going where it's due this time, it's exhausting. And even though Black women have endured and continue to endure 
like you were saying um, earlier, it's not sustainable from a wellness perspective. And that's why, as you bring up in the conclusion of your book, you know, the strong black woman trope has been getting rightfully critiqued and dissected more in recent years, right? And I'm not embarrassed to say it's part of why I go to therapy. You know, So I'm curious what your thoughts are on what is needed to celebrate and care for black women more holistically, more consistently, you know, culturally, policy wise, all of it. I know it's a, a big question, but <laughs> I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts because I know you dive into them at the end of your book. Yes, yes. And I hear you 100 percent. It's the same reason why I've had to speak with counselors, because so much falls on our shoulders and historically and and culturally, we often feel as Black women that maybe it's supposed to and that we're very willing to do the work on behalf of others. But I'm grateful that many of us are starting to change that narrative, interrupt that kind of trauma, and think about the ways in which others can support us, as well as ways in which we can, one, start taking more credit for our contributions. Um, I think recognition has power to heal. When we're not saying thank you, or we're not celebrating those who have done so much for us, that's again painful and many black scholars speak about that as being violent um, because when you're not seen and you're not given that recognition, you feel erased and you feel unimportant and you feel undervalued and underappreciated. And a part of that as black women, we have to be willing to share our stories um, when we feel safe to do so. We also have to be willing to ask for help and I think Alberta, Burtis, and Louise demonstrate different ways to, yes, be strong because in in many ways we don't have other choices. We do have to move forward and we have to cope and we have to persist, but they also formed communities around themselves. They were vulnerable with their partners. They spoke with their children even about what they experienced in terms of what they were worried about and what they were sad about. And I think part of it is also allowing ourselves, Black women, those spaces um, and finding healing where we can. But beyond that, there is so much more support that we need. I use examples in the book, but here are just a few that are top of mind. If a woman, a Black woman finds herself in a relationship where she's suffering abuse, she needs to be able to go somewhere where she has help, who someone she can call, who is not an officer, who is going to come and hurt her family more than um, than that's already hurting. We need, you know, this goes with this conversation around defund the police. This is an example. There needs to be a different form of support. Uh, we need to think about rewriting gun laws that could have prevented not only MLK Jr.'s death as well as Malcolm X's death, but Alberta King herself was assassinated in her church and nobody was protecting her. We need to rethink things like universal basic income. If we had a an income floor where our basic needs were met, there's so much more than the, that these women could have done and that Black mothers today could do for themselves, for their children, and for their communities. If we think about the need for universal quality child care. This is crucial. And our country is really lacking on this, that there's not always a safe space where your children can go if you need to work or if you want to pursue more education or if you simply want to breathe for a second and relax. It shouldn't be that you have to pay such insane amounts of money to have quality care for your children. And we can address the maternal health crisis, the Black maternal health crisis, where we are more likely to die in 
pregnancy and childbirth simply because we're black women, no matter how educated we might be, no matter our access to resources. So the list goes on and on, but these are actually very tangible changes. And again, what I was speaking about earlier with, if we understand narratives and we know the stories behind the numbers, like we get to learn about Alberta King, Bernice Baldwin and Louise Little, and we think about the different policies that each president proposed during their lifetimes, we better understand that history and we think, oh, I see how painful that was, or I see why that maybe wasn't the best decision. It's the same for right now. How do we carry their stories with us? And we think about what would have made their lives easier today? What are things that we can actually change and improve so that black women can continue to do the work that we're willing to do for others, but that it becomes easier and we're recognized for it and we're celebrated for it not only because of our strength, um, but and not only because of the pain of what we've endured, but we celebrate our joy and we celebrate accomplishments and we alleviate the burden. All right. Well, we have a caller. Let's go to caller Gerald in San Francisco. Gerald, hi, you're on the air. Hi, how are you all doing? I'm just hi. fascinated by this story. And as I mentioned to your producer, I have a similar story in my family. My grandmother was named Freddie Marable. We are of the Marable family of the great Manning Marable. Well, my grandmother helped found the first high school in Clayton County, Georgia, black high school called Fountain High. Okay. Both me and my father are graduates of Morehouse College. My grandmother told me a fantastic story that when she went to a, a big conference, because she, you know, she went to high school. She, the reason she graduated from high school was because she was half white. And her white grandmother made sure she graduated from high school, even though my grandfather was illiterate. But she goes to this conference and she has to make this speech, and she's terrified. So a woman sits down and talks with her in the hotel room to calm her down and get her squared away for the speech. That woman was the grandmother of Emmett Till. Wow. So I have very similar situations in my family as to what you're talking about. I was raised in a little town outside of Haightville, Georgia, called Plunky Town. Okay. And that uh, place was so poor that we had, we didn't have in, indoor plumbing. But an elementary school was built in the neighborhood after Caroline F. Harper who was a slave who freed herself, donated the land for that elementary school. And the teachers there all came from Morehouse, Spelman, and Clark Atlanta University that taught us in that school. So there's a tremendous amount of history to what you're talking about, and I celebrate you for getting this story out. There's lots thank of you. these kinds of stories that resonate with what you're saying. So thank you so much. Yes, I think you should write a book. I that know, sounds that powerful. <laughs> beautiful. And I was, while I was reading the book last night, I actually was glancing up and seeing um, Manning Marable's book, Malcolm X, A Life of Reinvention, thinking also of kind of the, the different perspectives and, and what he brought to the conversation, but then hearing yeah. more about your grandmother. Wow, that's that's really powerful. Uh, beautiful. I want, and I'm so excited. Actually, this is a big part of the book that I'm most excited about is hearing more of these stories. More of them need to be told and celebrated. That's an incredible life to live. My goodness. Well, thank you again, Gerald, for, for sharing that history with us. And um, reading 
you know, I was saying there were lots of different books that were popping to mind as I was I was reading yours. Um, the three. Um, so another one that I thought of was "We Live for the We: The Political Power of Black Motherhood" by Danny McLean. And as you know, speaking as a mother trying to figure out how to raise her daughter in an unjust world, I should say, writing as a mother. Um, and you write about learning you would be a mother for the first time in the process of researching this book. How did the book impact how you were feeling and thinking about motherhood, and vice versa, in that whole process? It impacted it in every way. Also, I'm so glad you gave a shout out to We Live for the We. I absolutely love that book. It's powerful. It's raw. It's vulnerable. And yeah, it's a, it's just a masterpiece. But in every way, it was amazing to be doing this research and be in the middle of the research when I found out that I was expecting my son. I didn't know his sex at the time. We left it a surprise so that I was expecting my child. And I was excited. Of course, I was overjoyed, but I also was well aware of the dangers. And, you know, we've spoken about it with the Black maternal health crisis. And in studying Alberta Burtis and Louise, I was given hope and strength because there was never this acceptance that the way we were viewed in this nation was something that we just had to bow down to or that we just had to take um, and deal with inevitable loss in our lives. They were constantly active in producing change while they were on earth and teaching their children how to join them in that transformational work. And that was something that I felt empowered by that as much as those fears were real and those dangers were real, I could still speak for myself. I could find advocates. For instance, I knew I wanted to have doulas and other women of color in the room with me when I gave birth to my child. That was crucial uh, for me to feel comfortable going into the hospital. And it also allowed me to see motherhood as something that's powerful, that's revolutionary, that's liberatory. Quite often, and I'm not going to get too theoretical about it, but When we think about maternal theory, much of it is based in middle-class white women's experience where it's often seen as this reproduction of patriarchy, where we say these are very specific roles that men play and then women play and women take care of the children and they stay in the domestic sphere, et cetera, et cetera. But for women of color, we've approached our motherhood very differently because we see it as a way to recreate the world and to recreate the world in a more equitable, fair and just way. It's how we teach our children and we reevaluate different roles in society. And, you know, even Alberta King saying to MLK Jr. when he was really young, this is not the natural order of things. Jim Crow is not the natural order of things. Mm. So we need to change that. And so you see yourself as an agent of transformation and an educator who's passing that knowledge of revolution to your children. And it's just so powerful. So I see myself very differently than society quite often looks at mothers. And I hope this book allows us to re-examine the power of motherhood. Again, we're talking to Anna Malika Tubbs about her book, The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. You're listening to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail. Now, we have a couple shout outs through comments that I uh, want to read. Jim tweets, I nominate Dr. Mae Jameson, Jameson, the first woman of color in space who runs who runs a 100-year Starship design program. So that's one I want to see some more coverage of. Nisi wants to highlight 
Bessie Blount Griffin, who was a nurse and physical therapist during World War II, invented various devices to help amputees carry out life tasks. She was unappreciated at the time, and her inventions were rejected by the Veterans Administration, and she ended up giving them to the French government. Interesting. Yeah, something to learn. And um, we also have one other comment that says, uh, and this kind of references goes back to what I kind of brought up with your thoughts on kind of moving forward. I just... So this listener writes, I just watched Judas and the Black Messiah and the murder of Black Panther um, chairman Fred Hampton in Chicago mm-hmm. and was struck by the story of Deborah Johnson and her instrumental role, who was his partner. We've seen again and again in movements where women take backstage roles because that was the only option. Can you talk more about how to honor and understand these women? Absolutely. I think part of it is this reevaluation of the role that they were playing and why we often framed it as if it was backstage. You know, even in my personal life, my husband is a public figure, was the mayor of Stockton for four years, is relatively well known. And I was often referred to as the woman behind the great man. And I don't see that as a compliment. I find that to be incredibly insulting. I'm not standing behind him. I've been doing my own work. I have my own identity. But people were putting me in this box as if I was going to say, oh, thank you so much. It's really my honor to care for for him. Um, While my partnership is incredibly important and I am deeply grateful for uh, our love and how we support each other, there was this notion that reduced me in many ways. And so even when we speak about these women in history, we are in some ways assuming that that was the role that they were playing, that they were in the background, even if they were, again, living very full lives on their own and had their identities that they were very proud of. And maybe even they themselves were well aware of the differences they were making, even if they weren't receiving credit for it. So one is our reevaluation of that history. And secondly, it is, again, telling these stories from a different perspective. When we reduce stories that way, it's very male gaze oriented. Um, But again, like when you read this book, you're going to think differently about how we read history. Even the sons gave credit to their mothers in a lot of ways for their work. And if you go back through and read their works, after you read my book, you're going to start to see the sons differently and start to pay more attention to who they were giving credit to. So those are just two points that I, I think we could focus on. I'm going to watch the movie tonight. I'm really looking forward to it. So thank you for reminding me. And um, but we we need to stop reducing their, their this work and saying that we were taking the back um, kind of role where quite often we were just doing the work we wanted to do and just weren't receiving credit for it, but continue to do that work, whether our recognition was granted or not. All right. And I think I have time to squeeze in one more call. Ariane in San Francisco, you're on. Thank you so much for this discussion. Um, I think that there might be a practical way also to further people's consciousness about important African-American women in our society, and that would be the renaming of our city streets like Sutter Street, you know, the Sutter Fort where they had enslaved peoples. And there are many streets like that with military leaders. Um, And we could start by also opening what your guest says, these kind of dialogues, including at the schools, where people are encouraged to look at their textbooks critically. Mm. And the the you know and openly say what is missing from this story what do you think they left out and how can we think about those gaps today because they 
same gaps in consciousness exist to this very day. What would you want to add? What could you add from your own personal experience? And and sometimes people think that street names are too banal, but these are this is how we keep people's names in our consciousness and their important names like Sojourner Truth, who was who was a single mom who escaped slavery. She's known for her strength, but was she known also for her courage and her motherhood? Yeah. That mm-hmm. needs to be stressed, too. Thank just you. Great points. Thanks, Ariane. Yeah. We just have about 30 seconds, but Anna, do you have any kind of responses to, to that sort of recognition as well? I agree. Um, in every single way that we can start to celebrate more Black women, um, whether that's changing the names of schools, I do think it makes a difference, and changing the name of streets or you know, even having scholarships in their names. And, um, you know, I think about something that could be really cool, which would be an Alberta King scholarship, where we think about a mother who is an instrumentalist or uh, wants to become a teacher. There's so many different ways yeah, that Curtis we can. Baldwin, Baldwin Writing Scholarship. I would <laughs> love that. That would be so powerful. And, you know, she even accepted awards on James Baldwin's behalf. And he, you know, one of his dying wishes was that he wanted to be buried next to his mom. He died before her, but he said, I want to have this double plot because I want people to be aware that when they come to honor me, they have to honor her, that one can't be done without the other. So I'm sure he would have agreed with that as well. So just spending yeah more time changing the names and making sure that we're saying them and we're celebrating that history. I, I love that idea. So I appreciate that comment. Well, thanks for joining me, Anna Malika Tubbs. Her new book is The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shapes a Nation. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail today, in today for Mina Kim, who'll be back tomorrow. And finally, I want to congratulate Michael Krasny on his retirement after 28 years of hosting Forum. You'll continue to hear Mina for the 10 a.m., but we'll have a lot of other voices coming in for the 9 a.m. Tell us what you want to hear. Email us, forum at kqed.org. Thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.